Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He gave an analogy of sorts. He said, a heavy wagon was being dragged along a country lane by a team of oxen. The axles groaned and creaked terribly. And when the oxen, turning around, thus addressed the wheels, Hey there, why do you make so much noise? We bear all the labor, and we, not you, ought to cry out. Picture is of a wagon being pulled and the oxen in front, kind of rebuking the axles groaning underneath the weight. See, what Spurgeon is pointing at is that our ease makes us painfully aware of our unease, right? It's like frat boys going to boot camp, right? We are so at ease that when we're not at ease, we uh, groan and, and kind of wail underneath it. See, we grew up in a nation that slogan was, don't tread on me. And our songs and our poems and our books all spoke uh, about valuing freedom. Every country music song that's going to be played this summer has country and trucks. You know, that's what they're about, right? But here in our text this morning, we have a threefold call to submit. And we feel the groan of that, don't we? That is, the life of the Christian... And the life of the American at sometimes are at odds. And we must pick one or the other to which we will be true. See, I'm not saying it's impossible to be both proud of our country and in Christ. Rather, I'm saying that some notions of the typically held American, when inspected, do not naturally square with the Christian faith. This morning, I think we kind of stumble upon one of these places where our own lives our own hearts, mine included, might be out of line with the text that God has put in front of us. So here's our big idea. Faith-filled subjection is winsome, not weak. We've got a lot of text this morning. We've got four points. In verses 11 through 12, we'll see this kind of this general call from Peter that we should live honorably, honorably before the world, right? Uh, it makes sense, kind of coming out of what we've just come out of. Peter's going to turn our eyes and our attention to practical advice or guidance for living in verses 11 through 12. And then he's going to apply that in three different spaces, two of which we'll get today. The first is that we are to be subject to emperors and governors in verses 13 through 17. And then in verses 18 through 20, that we are to be subject to unjust masters. And finally, we'll conclude seeing Jesus as an example in verses 21 through 25. I want to pray that God honors his time or our time in his word here this morning. Pray with me. Lord, we ask now that you would maximize this, clear away all the sinful dross of our hearts, and let us hear from you with clarity. Let us live in response to these words as they give life to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. See, the first thing we'll see in verses 11 through 12 is that we should live honorably before the Lord. Look at verse 11 in 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. See, Peter gives us a heading for the next two chapters here. In case you're uh, unfamiliar with the book of 1 Peter, what we're going to see is kind of a turning in verse 11 here, and it's kind of signaled by this word beloved, because the next time we'll see that same shift is in chapter 4, verse 12. We'll see that same word kind of used, beloved, and it'll kind of shift again for us. And so Peter uses that word to kind of clue us into a different direction that's happening. And what he says here in verse 11 is that we are to abstain from fleshly passions because we're exiles, as we've talked about from chapter 1, verse 1, we're elect exiles. We are sojourners and exiles here in verse 11. We are to stay away from the passions of the flesh. That is, the things that are most natural to us. Paul uses the same phrase. He calls it just the flesh. And what it is is a description of those kind of default settings of the sinful heart, the things that we are most inclined toward. But these actions are not in keeping with our new life in Christ. You did not learn Christ in this way, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. See, in fact, Peter tells us that they wage war against our soul, that these actions that are most natural to us are also most harmful to us. Now think about that the next time someone says, just follow your heart. The things that are most natural to us can become the most violent to our souls, the most damaged to us and to those around us. Some of us, we, we fly behind this ceiling of personality. We say, this is how God has made me. And what we should say is say, God is refining my character to strip away those things that are opposite of his character and his righteousness. But what Peter forbids in this negative commandment, he complements with a positive commandment in verse 12. He says, we are to live honorably amongst the Gentiles. Verse 11 is negatively stated, stay away from the passions, live honorably, positive statement. Look at what he says there in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We are to live honorably honorably amongst unbelieving people. In fact, Peter is very concerned in this letter about our conduct. He uses this word some five or six times in chapter 1, verses 15 and 18, and chapter 2, verse 12 here, and chapter 3, 1 and 2 and 16. In one fifteen, he told us to be holy in all of our conduct. But here's what's different here, is that the context is different. He's telling us to do so among unbelieving people or among the Gentiles. Peter spoke last week about how to conduct ourselves with those who share our faith, how to love those who are within the household of faith with us, and now he's directing us how to interact with those who don't share our faith. How do we conduct ourselves around them? But now, Peter's turned his attention to a very different context for a specific purpose. And look at the second half of verse 12, where he tells us exactly what that purpose is. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It reminds us of the words of Jesus, right? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven. Notice, Peter isn't saying these unbelieving people might speak against you. Like, it's a possibility. He's speaking about it as if it were definitely going to happen. It's when that will happen. So what's Peter concern, what Peter's concern is, is that for the spiritual development, the spiritual 
thriving of these unbelieving people. He wants for them to see the good works of Christians so that they might turn to Christ in faith. So here's what happens, right? If we are abstaining from the passions of the flesh that are most natural to us, if we are being careful to live honorably amongst our unbelieving neighbors and friends, and they, meanwhile, are not careful to not live in the passions of the flesh, our living should highlight that difference. So Peter starts by calling us to a general principle, conduct ourselves honorably amongst unbelievers so that they might become believers. That's what he says in this last phrase, so that uh, seeing your good deeds, they might glorify God on the day of visitation. I've been doing music for some 12 years, 15 years in churches. One of the hardest things to do is for two singers to sing in unison. If you have any experience with that. I'm a horrible person to sing with. I don't do the same thing twice, like ever. And it's really hard to sing in unison for that very reason. See, uh, people who are poor singers, they, they lack control of their voice. They lack control to be able to do the same thing twice. So you might sound great in the shower, but you might sound really bad singing next to somebody who really knows how to sing. See, this is what this Peter is drawing our attention to. In the same way, there is a dissonance between the believer and the unbeliever. The difference between the believer, the born-again, walking-in-holiness person who is filled with the Spirit, and the unbeliever given to the passion of the flesh is stark. And what Peter wants to do is he wants to lay this foundation, and he wants to bring us into multiple contexts which we would apply this principle. We want to live honorably amongst our unbelieving friends and neighbors. And what he's going to do from here is he's going to bring us into three different contexts in which we should live out this principle. One is in our submission to governing authorities. Two is in our submission from slaves to masters, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And then finally, what we'll get to next week is the submission of wives to their husbands and husbands' kind of responsive love to their wives. So look at verse 13, where we're going to see we are subject to emperors and governors. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. See, the rule that Peter starts off with, the the commandment is, is clear here in verse 13. Be subject to emperors and their governors. Peter gives this broad command, right? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Let's just kind of break that down so we understand exactly what's happening in this phrasing. The first is be subject or be subordinate or obey. There really isn't much wiggle room here, right? If the ruling authorities ask you to do it, you should generally have the posture of obedience, Second, we are to be subject for the Lord's sake. That is, our submission is not for our benefit or even for the benefit of the governing authorities. 
Peter's concern is that the Christian's relationship is honoring the king, the, the true king, Jesus Christ. See, we submit to kings and governing authorities, not because they are worthy of our subjection, because it's honoring to our God. See, Paul tells us that God has placed our governing authorities over us in Romans 13. He says this, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Thus, when we submit to government, we submit to God. And there's no way by which we can disobey a amoral government without dishonoring God. Now, hear what I just said, an amoral government, a government that gives you commands that have no moral spin to them. We are to live in subjection to those authorities. And finally, he says this. He says to submit to every human institution. And this is a little bit confused, but luckily, Peter goes on to describe exactly what that is, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So Peter is saying that they are to subject, be subject to the governing entities. And that's a hierarchy reigning up to the emperor himself, to all those uh, kind of underlings that the emperor has to be able to enforce his rules and his law. See, we are to submit ourselves to governing authorities. Excuse me. Now, here's what's interesting, is that Peter grounds this in three different ideas in verses 15 through 17. In verse 15, he gives us reason number one. Submissive living condemns foolishness. It's what he says in verse 15. It's so clear. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, God silences foolish people by the righteous submission of his people. As Christians do good amidst a government that they disagree with, their enemies look foolish. Personally, I felt convicted as I've read this. Because I realize that God's means to silence the foolishness we see in our world is my submission to governing authorities. If I'm frustrated with the foolishness that I see in Washington or the foolishness that I see in Columbus or the foolishness I see in Miami County, or if I'm frustrated with the foolishness I even see in Hollywood or the foolishness I see in Wall Street, it's a condemnation to myself for not living in subjection to governing authorities. My unruly spirit only fosters this foolishness. My grumbling about our government only speaks sinful arrogance before a watching world. And it perpetuates the process of foolishness around us. You tired of watching nonsense on MSNBC or Fox News? Are you tired of your government just doing all of these things? Live in submission. Second thing he says is that we are free as God's servants. The reason we should obey is that we are free as God's servants. In verse 16, look at what he says. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. See, Peter gives us three statements, and when we pull them all together, we get a really clear picture of what he's drawing our attention to. We are free. We cannot use that freedom to cover up our sin, 
And three, that we are servants of God. See, what Peter is drawing us to is that we are free as servants. We are free from our sinfulness, from our humanity, and that makes us servants to a holy, righteous God. You and I don't have the choice of who we will serve any longer. We are righteous servants of God. Our freedom from sin finds its full expression in our service to God. So we submit to governing authorities because we are servants of the God who placed them where they are. Reason number three. Verse 17 says that we should honor all people. All people. Since what he says is so clear in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter lays out a number of relationships with deepening obligations, right? He starts off with this general command, honor everyone. And by everyone, the Greek means everyone. From the farthest left to the farthest right, regardless of creed or color or whatever else it might be, we are as Christians to honor everyone. The most hardened sinner, the softest, most gentlest person on the earth, we are to honor all of them. And he presses a little bit further and he says, we are to love the brotherhood. We talked about this last week. If you're new in Christ, you should have a special love for Christian believers and the gathering together. And then finally, we should fear God. As a subset then, he returns back to this honoring the emperor because the emperor is part of everyone. We are to honor the emperor. Now notice he doesn't call us to fear the emperor. He calls us to fear God and therefore to honor the emperor. What does this mean? Let me give an example. Tomorrow morning we wake up and the government has issued an an order that every Friday we are to wear pink pajamas. It doesn't matter where you are, you are to wear pink bunny pajamas, right? Like with the bunny faces on the feet and on the hands and everything else. And because our clothing is not a moral issue, at least not in this arena, guess what? In submission to the governing authorities, you and I wear pink pajamas. Not because you think you look good in pink. Not because it's good for the government. Rather, you wear pink pajamas on Fridays because the government that God has put in place has asked you to do so. And therefore, you obey out of service to God himself. I recognize here this morning, not many of us, that many of us may not be on agreement in this principle. And I want to say as we preach this, I invite your feedback. Maybe this would be the beginning of a longer conversation Kind of as an aside, I want to thank you as a body, as I know some of you have not always agreed with me in these areas, but you've always been respectful, and I'm abundantly thankful for that. And I pray that we might continue in that dialogue. We might not see things eye to eye, but we might have a a, a good dialogue about what the Lord requires of us. See, there have been many evangelical pastors who have both modeled and spoken boldly about their political resistance. And I'll say just depending on the situation, I found these examples of civil disobedience to be more and less in line with what God had called us to do. 
And I'd like to take a moment just to slow down and entertain some objections to the idea that we should submit to government mandates and rules. And just apply this principle and just think through it with a clear head and an open heart. See, here's some of the objections that I've heard. A pastor friend told me, because good government is a thing worth fighting for, we should oppose our government, our government's overreach and disobey. Let me read that again so it's clear. Because good government is a thing worth fighting for, we should oppose our government's overreach and therefore disobey. But notice what Peter says here. Peter's words don't begin to address the quality of the leadership that we're to submit to, does it? In fact, Peter's writing from Rome where a man named Nero is burning his friends at the stake. Peter's friends, his relatives, his fellow believers in Christ would be put to death by Nero himself. If anyone had the right to be critical of a governing authority, I would think it would be Peter. See, how a government rules itself is not a valid means for us to cease submission to it. Others might say, in our government, we are the ones in charge. This is a half-truth. It's true. We live in a democracy, meaning our vote gives our politicians access to the offices that they fill, right? We vote for them or we don't vote for them, but the majority vote goes, well, sometimes the majority vote goes, and that creates their access to that office. But it's worth noting that we actually live in a representative democracy or a democratic republic. And so when our elected officials, our, our representatives are elected, they are our authorities, whether we like it or not. Test it out sometime. Go to the, the White House, just knock on the door, say, I'm in charge here. I'm in charge. Let me in. I want to run the show. See what happens. Another objection we've heard. When our government stands outside constitutional authority, they disobey Romans 13 and thus are to be disobeyed. Let me read that again because it's thick. When our government stands outside constitutional authority, they disobey Romans 13 and thus are to be disobeyed. I get it. I hear you. The Constitution establishes a relationship between the governing and the governed. We've done this thing, we've made this constitution that kind of ordains how exactly we'll go about this thing, and we stapled to it this Bill of Rights that guarantees us rights and freedoms, and we should stand for those. We should write our congressmen, we should vote for those, right? That's something we should be actively doing, but since when has a performance of a wrong ever made the response of another wrong right? I'll give it to you this way. You're, you have kids, right? If you have kids, kid number one goes and punches kid number two, and kid number two punches them back. Do they both get in trouble? Absolutely. They're both wrong. It's worth noting that Peter never qualifies what type of government authority is to be submitted to. 
As we look, we can say, yeah, our government entities are acting outside of their authority at times. We've seen for the last three presidencies, we've seen presidential overreach. It's happened on both parties' sides. How do we interact with that? Now, it's worth noting, too, to bring balance to this principle, that Peter himself had moments of disobedience to governing authorities. We think of Acts chapter 4 and 5, where Peter goes to the Sanhedrin, and they say, you're going to stop preaching Jesus. And Peter and John almost say in unison, they say, no, 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 we're not going to stop preaching. How can we stop preaching about Jesus? They tell them, no, we're not going to stop doing that. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is in a jail cell. The earth starts to quake. The prison falls apart. Peter can escape, but he sits tight until what? Until an angel shows up and says, Peter, you should get out of here. Peter flees uh, his own prison cell. That might also be cast as disobedience. Listen. When your government requires you to do something that God forbids or forbids you to do something that that God requires, you have divine precedent to humbly disobey. Let me say that again. When your government requires you to do something that God forbids or forbids you to do something that God requires, you have divine precedent. Through the scriptures, you stand in the shadow of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. You stand in the shadow of Daniel. You stand in the shadow of Peter and James and Paul to some degree as they chose disobedience. But in nearly every circumstance that a person does this, they willingly take on the consequence of it. Shadrach and Meshach and and Abednego stood in fire. Daniel stood before starving lions. You want to disobey? Count the cost. See if it's worth it. See, there certainly is a place and a time for a weighed, conscientious disobedience to governing authorities. But this is only when there is a clear violation of Scripture. And I say this as someone who closed our services for eight weeks last year. You know, we haven't talked about this, but honestly, I, I, I recognize that I'm going to stand before the Lord and I'm going to give an account for those eight weeks. I don't know that I would do it the same way again. I, I clearly, I, I know what Hebrews 10 says, that we shouldn't neglect meeting together, but we chose to shut down our services. I don't know if that was the right thing or not. See, fundamentally, the stance of the Christian should be a willing, humble submission to his governing authorities. That's what Peter calls us to so clearly here. But guess what? Peter has more submitting for us. Isn't that fun? Are we having fun yet? See, this time it presses into the relationship between slaves and masters in verses 18 through 20. It says, we are to be subject to just and unjust masters. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, we got to stop here for a second because this word slave and master, they are just loaded terms for us. 
And I, we've said so many times before that uh, slavery in the first century wasn't quite like the chattel slavery that, that we had in, in the beginning of our country that we know was wrong, that we, we know wasn't right, that we were devaluing human people. But I've been guilty before of drawing a direct correlation between first century slavery and our modern practices of employment. And it's not quite a, a one-to-one correlation. Tom Schreiner describes what slavery was like. And he was saying uh, that basically there was only a few circumstances which you would enter into slavery. You could voluntarily enter yourself into slavery. But when you became a slave, you had no rights The slave could be beaten, branded, abused, whether physically or sexually. And we thank God, as we kind of turn to this part of our passage, that this type of slavery, that is this uh, open, condoned, dehumanizing of others, isn't allowed in our society anymore. We might still have human trafficking and other issues, but they have to be done in secret. They can't be out in the open. We recognize and we stand in in a long tradition of Christians who say all men are made in the image of God, and therefore we should respect all people. And so we thank God that this type of slavery doesn't exist, but I do think that one of the best applications for us of this principle is, is us, an employee, to our boss. As Peter writes this statement, I think that might be the simplest application for us this morning so he gives this rule in verse 18, be subject to both good and bad masters. Look at what Peter says, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. Once again, Peter uses this word, be subject. And notice also that the character of the master has no bearing on the call to submission. Just or unjust, they are to be submitted to. Next, Peter says that it's of God's grace when we suffer unjustly. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, Peter tells us twice that this suffering is a gracious thing. That is, it's charis, it's grace, that suffering is grace from God. Suffering for disobedience makes no credit, no glory, no uh, honor for you in the future. But when we suffer mindfully, as Peter said, it gives grace to us. That is, when we weigh our situation in light of our faith and choose the more difficult path, this is God's grace. See here, Peter calls us to right-side-up living in an upside-down world. We submit to governing authorities. We submit to our earthly masters. And we do so because we are servants of God. And now Peter wants to give us kind of this rich gospel foundation for which we can found these things. He wants to talk to us about the person of Christ who's both example and enabler for our willful suffering. So this is what we turn to in verses 21 through 25. Jesus is our example and our empowerment in suffering. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." The first thing is that Jesus is an exemplary Christ. Peter tells us that Jesus is our example. We've talked about this before. He's our hupogramon. That's a a tool that these uh, children in the first century would use. They had the Greek letters of the alphabet written out, and a, a child would trace over each letter of the alphabet. Jesus was like this this tablet that you would trace over, and he's patterned for us the way to suffer in righteousness. And what the Christian is to do is to just follow the example of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is our hupogramon. He, he, he's given to us to teach us how to suffer. And look at what he says next in verse 22. Verse 2 shows us a sinless Christ. He's an exemplary Christ, and he's a sinless Christ. In verse 22, he says this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That is, that Jesus was flawless. There was nothing in him that raised violation against God the Father. Now, you and I should see this claim as what it is. It is astounding that Jesus Christ took on flesh just like you and I did. He had all of the pressures that we face. He was tempted in every way, yet as Hebrews says, he was without sin. Jesus took on our flesh and still lived in perfect submission. This shows that he is absolutely from the Father. He's absolutely divine. And we want to just stop and take note that Jesus' submission showed us his godliness. So we have an exemplary Christ. We have a sinless Christ. We have a tested Christ in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, Jesus' pattern was not to return hurt to those who hurt him. He did not revile when reviled. He did not threaten when he suffered. He did so, as the verse says, because he entrusted himself to his Father. Peter makes a connection between Jesus' trust in his Father and his ability in suffering. Verses 24 and 25, turn a corner. And if Jesus is our example, he's exemplary, he's tested, he's sinless. He becomes our empowerment in verses 24 and 25. See, here's the thing. If, if you and I are just supposed to be like Jesus, aren't we dead in the water? Isn't that just like me placing a new law over you? Isn't it just like me say, well, just be like Christ, Right? suffer like Jesus. Can't you do it? Now, thank God that Peter finishes out his thought in verses 24 and 25 and tells us about an enabling Savior who enables us to suffer well. Look what he says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. See, the nature of Jesus' suffering is that he took on a substitution 
preliminary atonement. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might become righteous in Christ. And he shows us the purpose of his sufferings, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus suffered in order that our sin would die and our righteousness would live. And he shows us the context. All of this is to keep our sinful hearts from straying. We were like stupid sheep wandering away from our master. And now he's brought us back to himself, the good shepherd who oversees our souls. See, what you and I need, if we're going to live in this type of submission, we need a Savior who submitted himself. Don't we? So what does this 21st century submission look like? If Jesus is the example of what submission is ultimately to look like, what does it look like here and now in the 21st century? What's it look like amidst cell phones and 24-hour news cycles and, and cars and everything else? What's it look like for us tomorrow to wake up and put on a spirit of submission to the Lordship of Christ and to live that out before the governing authorities and before our bosses or whatever else it might be? I want to start and I want to just dispel some ideas that might be floating around in your head about what submission is. See, submission is not silence. Submission is not silence. I have no anticipation that we wouldn't be able to speak our mind about our political disagreements or, or talk to our boss openly. In fact, I might even say that uh, both of those contexts invite us into a, a new avenue to express our faith in Christ. You vote like a Christian, right? You are employed like a Christian. See, our political opportunity, our work opportunity also calls us to put on Christ-likeness. We, we vote, we write letters to our governors, we uh, sometimes state our political opinions, but hopefully we do so with the utmost honor and generosity and expectancy of God's goodness and his grace. Yeah, I find the political dialogue that we have right now just absolutely overwhelming. There's no generosity there's no healthy engagement with others. There's only defiance, deception. As Christians, we should find a way to engage differently with, with hope of Christ. So submission is not silence. Secondly, submission is not weak. That is to say, it might look weak to the world, but it's decidedly powerful for the kingdom. Stephen, when he was stoned, he looked like weakness to the world, didn't he? But what God used it to do in the kingdom was to spread the gospel. So submission is not weak. If Christ submitted, it wasn't from lack of power or authority. It was from voluntary submission. So submission is not silence. Submission is not weak. Submission is not defeat. We might be mistaken to think that intentional submission to authorities or to bosses is a loss for the kingdom, but for all intents and purposes, the kingdom's loss is when we stop carrying the values of our king. 
when we stop being spirit-filled, when we start, stop showing out the fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. In fact, it is our God's pattern to turn our losses into kingdom victories. We just read the story of Joseph, right? Where everything seemed like a loss for so long. We just talked about the story of Daniel where it seemed like Daniel was absolutely defeated and it turned out for God's glory. See, what does submission in the 21st century look like? Submission is humble confidence. humble confidence. We don't have to strut because we know that someday Christ will return. He will establish his kingdom in full. He will bring us into his presence for all eternity. Submission is faith-filled expectancy. We anticipate that the Lord will provide his salvation in his time. Faith-filled expectancy that's strong in the Lord. That is, it's not self-reliant. It's not boastful and arrogant. Rather, it humbly seeks to cling to God's promises and invites others to do the same. See, if you and I are truly in Christ, why do we need to fight for right now? We want to point out the errors of the world and invite them to loving engagement with Christ. Jesus said it. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. See, here's my concern this morning. As we read this passage, it highlights something that's happening in our culture. See, the culture, as we kind of pointed out a little bit last week, we are divergent with the culture, aren't we? The world and the church are increasingly heading in opposite directions. And I don't intend to strike fear or to make us fearful or afraid or anything else, but what is happening since the 1950s is we've become increasingly secular as a society. And what that means is that you and I are just, uh, the society around us isn't just opening a Bible to find what God wants for them. They're opening multiple holy books. They're opening multiple sources. They're turning to sociology. They're turning to psychology. They're turning to science. They're turning to all of these other things rather than what we claim as true and valid. And that that puts us at odds. So the truth of that, Christian, for us this morning is that you and I will increasingly have to embrace living in submission. We'll have to pick our battles well, won't we? We'll have to decide those things that are hills to die on, won't we? We'll have to take up our cross and have to bear it ourselves. See, now more than ever, we must learn to articulate our disagreement with the world around us with Christ-like humility. We, more than any generation previous to us in America, in the church, must take up our cross with Christ and embrace submissive, faith-filled, Christ-honoring suffering. Some of you are here this morning saying, It's not what I signed up for. I walked the aisle when I was in the ninth grade. I threw my stick in the fire when I was 10. I raised my hand at the Billy Graham evangelist rally or whatever else you did. I didn't sign up for this kind of suffering. It's okay. This is the kind of faith that God calls us to. Expression that's willing to put down our desires and to exalt the person of Christ. 
I want to pray to that end, that God would make us servants who willingly submit for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we feel like sojourners and exiles. We feel at odds with the world in which we're placed. So God, we just cry out to you this morning that you, Father, would prepare us for heartfelt, faith-filled submission. And when the time comes that we would no longer be called to submit, we pray that you would give us wisdom, understanding, strength, that you would be honored and glorified in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.